legacy of George Smith Partners, what George Smith Partners stands for as a firm, and where we intend to go. Welcome to The Landscape, the GSP FinFacts podcast. I'm Evan Kinney, and I'm here with my esteemed co-host, Mr. David Pascal. Hello, good to see everyone. Today, we have two very exciting guests, the original two co-founders of George Smith Partners. I guess there were several others then, but we have two of them here with us today, and I'll let them introduce themselves, but we're very excited to have an episode about the legacy of George Smith Partners, what George Smith Partners stands for as a firm, and where we intend to go. So maybe we'll start down here. I'll start. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve Bram. I'm one of the founders of the company. I've been here 39 years, and I was hired by... Me. I'm Gary Tenzer. Uh, I was here from day one. I joined George before George Smith Partners at a prior company. And when that company was acquired, George uh, started a new company and asked me to join him. And so if he was employee zero, I was employee one. And I've been here ever since. It's now 43 years of my career. That's great. So, um, David, do you want to fire away like with the first question here? So. Talk about maybe the three or four biggest changes to the business since you know the founding of GSP back in the days of portfolio lenders, etc. I'll talk about first the box that we're in, and then you talk about the lending scope, the way it's changed. Sure. So the box of the way work is done is obvious things from 1979, 1984 and now. Computers really weren't being used as much then. Uh, lenders, you had to call, you couldn't email them. Email didn't exist. Uh, uh, the internet didn't exist really then. So business was done face to face or on the phone. You didn't have Zoom. You well, let me add in. We had a print shop in the office to print books to send to lenders. Right. That's right. So we did all of that. So the whole way business was done, everybody came into the office. Nobody worked from home. So just the way of doing business, the scope of the number of lenders we work with and how we presented information to them is totally different. The way we calculated the numbers by hand was different because we had to do it by hand. And Gary, why don't you mention about the lending playing field, how that's changed? Well, there were, there were lenders that exist, that the classes of lenders that we worked with then that don't exist anymore. They're, they're uh, I think you might be able to find them in the Smithsonian. Uh, savings and loans come to mind. Uh, credit companies are another one um, that we did a lot of business with, like General Electric Credit, Westinghouse Credit, Greyhound uh, Credit, Greyhound Credit, yeah, McDonnell Douglas Credit. Right. Um, savings and loans. Well, we know what happened to them. Uh, thank you to the RTC. Um, the uh, but there were other classes of, of financing that didn't exist, and out of the RTC uh, came the CMPS lending and securitized lending. And that, that had not really that had, did not exist before, and it was really created as a as a vehicle to finance deals uh, that were uh, coming out of the out of this and else. Um, and then I'd add that also debt funds, hedge funds, and debt funds didn't exist. The whole ability of uh, pools of capital to to make loans through hedge funds and uh, and uh, debt funds did not exist but for 10 or 15 years. Yeah, really before the financial crisis, right. they really knew since then. So it's an industry that's constantly changing. That's one of the things that keeps it interesting. Obviously, real estate has changed. Uh, the the type, of, type of properties have changed. Um, uh, there, there's you know, Industrial properties are considerably larger than they were then. Uh, buildings are more sophisticated. Um, 
much more tailored to tenants than they were then. I think they were they were just really boxes that generated income before. And I think that the developers are thinking much more now about what suits the customer, the, the tenant. And what kind of properties don't we do anymore? Indoor malls. <laughs> we don't do indoor malls. Office buildings are hard to do. A couple of years ago, they were they were what everybody wanted to do. Uh, so things change. So tell us a little bit about um, how you did your work in the beginning. You mentioned it a little bit, but I know, Gary, that, that you were very instrumental in kind of pushing the company early on in, in a certain direction with technology. And obviously today, you know, we have a massive technology focus. We've built out an entire operating system internally, et cetera, but yeah. yeah. Well, I had, uh, I was a, uh, a, a, a hobbyist in programmable calculators. That's how I got into this, into, into, the, into the computing area. And I studied computing when I was a, an undergrad at Berkeley, but I wasn't a major, I was an economics major. Uh, but I took a few uh, programming classes and I was interested in, in programming. Um, and I, was, I went to a users group meeting one night uh, of, of calculators and somebody brought an Apple II computer in and showed me a demo of a program called VisiCalc. I had never seen anything like it before and it changed my life. VisiCalc, uh, unless you are over 60, you've never heard of it. Uh, VisiCalc was a predecessor to another program that really made the IBM PC what it was, uh, which was uh, Lotus 123. Actually, Lotus 123 made the, the, Apple, the Apple II what it was. VisiCalc was, a, was the, the predecessor to Lotus 123, and Lotus 123 begat Excel, and that's where we live today in Excel. Um, so I brought the, so, I came to George the next day, the next Monday, I walked into the office and said, George, I saw the future. Uh, I'm tired of doing all my calculations on green ledger paper, cross-footing and totaling down and making mistakes by hand. Uh, and I saw how to do this type of spreadsheet on a computer. We gotta get one of these things. And at the time, to outfit an Apple II computer with the memory we needed, a printer and a screen, was about, if I recall, about five or $6,000. Fortunately, his son had one that he wasn't using, uh, to play Space Invaders. Anyway, George brought it into the office, we set it up, and I, I got a demo copy of VisiCalc, and I was off and running, teaching myself how to do computer modeling. And that was the beginning, that was the first computer in the company. And then from there, we, we, we migrated from, app, from a couple of apples, and we started getting IBM PCs, and, and really sort of uh, focused on the, eventually Windows, uh, and, and Excel and Word. But that's really where, where what the genesis was. It started that we were doing some we were doing some modeling um, using remote dial-up terminals on service bureaus. It was very cumbersome, difficult to do, and expensive. So we did it very, very rarely. So you were asking where the business has gone. I think one of the things that makes our company special, the way it works, is that the senior guys uh, have teams or re, or or go back to the uh, shared services we have of younger guys, so that we can provide very detailed, extensive service to our clients. And that's either done by junior people on the team or junior people in shared services. Whereas the way that we work, and we've always worked this way, is to give exquisite service to the sponsors. So uh, as I always say, the sponsor can sleep at night because we don't. <laughs> and what that means is that we're staying up at night concerned about all the details that need to be done for the client. So the client doesn't have to be asking us, what's next, have you done everything? Rather, we're telling the client we're on top of everything. So that's one of the things that I think differentiates the way our company has always worked 
the whole time I've been here providing that level of service. I think that was one of the things that I learned from George is is, is that type of uh, work ethic of staying in, and staying in front of the client and doing what the do making the making it easy for the client. Uh, I think there were other things too that were that were very important lessons. Um, clearly, his emphasis on ethics uh, really stays with me. George passed away in, in uh, 2005, and we continued the company on, uh, fortunately, and very happy that we did. Uh, and we and we actually looked at each other and said, "Do we want to continue now? I mean, now that we don't have George, we don't have a we don't really have a leader. Can we manage this ourselves? And do we want to move on?" And we did in 2005. Partners at the time said, "Let's move forward." Uh, but we carried forward with with the ethos that George laid, laid out for us, uh, going back to the late '70s, early '80s, and I think we've we've carried that forward ever since. So, you know, go ahead. Baby. Yeah, I'll uh, take one here. So, uh, let's talk about let's talk about how FinFax uh, started, financing facts, well, the beginning, I'll, and what it sure, is today. I'll, also, I think the concept was how can we communicate with our customers who are out there? And it's called, we now call it FinFacts, F-A-C-T-S, but initially it was called Financing Facts, F-A-X, facsimile. And that's because before computers and email existed, people had fax machines. Many of you out there may not have ever seen a fax machine, but before you had email, people would send documents by fax. So uh, we would write up and I have to hand it over to David Pascal, who for at least 20 years and, and Gar uh, Gary Tenzer helped as well, that they've been preparing with George the financing fax document, which has always been one page, and we changed it to FinFax, F-A-C-T-S, and we no longer sent it out by fax, F-A-X. The idea has always been to keep the clients educated on the kind of financing we're seeing. So the FinFax has three parts of it. One part is to describe a deal or deals that we've recently closed so clients can say, gee, that's interesting. Maybe I have a deal like that that you guys could help me with. Or I never knew those kinds of deals are being done out there. That's nice thing to learn. The second part is what's a lender that's got a new program that we share? Same reason clients read it because they don't know what programs are out there. And the third thing is the economic forecast and David Pascal writes that. David, maybe you can tell what's in that. Uh, well, it's something I started writing with George and, and it was basically just some commentary on rates and lenders and at the time we were really concentrated on what's going on in the CMBS market because it really changed lending. There was no newsletter talking about, you know, weekly CMBS updates, which kind of set market spreads. So we were known for that in the early days. And, you know, and as you know, I learned how to write from George. And then after George passed away, I, I basically just uh, I try to imitate George, and so, so that's to, what I'm doing now. So to complicate, to compliment David Pascal, he's been writing this economic forecast in the FinFax for the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, David is so good that often Bloomberg asks him to write things for them, and we bump we I bump into people 
in New York or LA in the financing business, and they all say, we read your FinFacts every day, our FinFact every week. Our FinFax goes out to 70,000 people, get it every week. And, and, they're, and they're all double, double opt-in. They're all double opt-in, which means we don't just uh, uh, scam, uh, uh, spam. Spam people. These are real yeah, subscribers. People who want it. Yeah. And we bump into people that say, I read your FinFax every week when it comes because it tells me what's going on. It's short, it's sweet, and it's to the point. And the interesting thing is, a major sector who reads our FinFax are lenders because they're interested to know what their competition is doing and they want to know it and, that, and they're going to school on us. They call us all the time to ask us, maybe not what a specific lender is doing, but what, how is price, what, what's the market pricing a certain type of deal at or how, is a deal, how are deals being structured uh, in a certain way. Uh, so the, we become a, sort of the, the clearinghouse of information for a lot of lending, lenders as well as for clients. So I'd like to just shift gears a little bit onto like, what are the, the core values that have made George Smith Partners successful over the years? You know, we, we've talked a little bit about this, Gary, and, and a little bit of, as a firm recently. Um, but, you know, over the last, you know, I've been here, you know, seven or eight years, and I've heard a lot of quotes from George Smith that kind of reference things like um, trustworthiness and uh, a true client service focus. Let's take a little bit of time to focus on on those points and talk about things that you guys learned from George around those and, and how those are still relevant, if so, today. Well, I, I, for instance, it was it became very apparent to me, well, it's easy math, you understand that we're compensated by a commission and the larger the deal, the larger the commission. So the natural inclination would be to try and push dollars in a loan. And George never would do that. And I learned that from him. He always wanted to right size a loan for the client to do what was best for the client, even though if he could have squeezed another $20,000 commission out of it, he could have, but he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. His philosophy was, I want to have the client really happy because I want them to come back. Mm -hmm. I don't want to make the last nickel on this deal. I want to make it of a career uh, of, of repeat, uh, repeat relationship with the client. And I think that's a, that's a very important. I want to add a point here, and that is that uh, full disclosure to lenders, honesty to lenders, is one of the keys to our success. Because a client hires us to represent them to pitch their deal to lenders. Lenders get dozens and dozens or more of submissions a day. And they want to make sure that the person that sends them the submission is someone they can trust. Not only do they want a package they can understand, but they want to make sure that it's truthful, honest, and fully discloses everything that needs to be disclosed. And if we just did one wrong thing once, that lender's never going to forget about it and forget about it and never going to trust our packages again. So every single time we send something out, it must be 100% full disclosure and truthful and honest. And that's what we do because it's the right thing to do for business and because it's the right thing to do. And therefore, we make extra clear that we're full disclosure on everything. It's good for business and it's good to be able to sleep at night for us. And if we're making assumptions about things, we label them and we disclose what they are. So while some people may, might put packages together that are all fluff and try to make it look like the deal's great when maybe it's not, the better approach is to always disclose the pimples on the deal up front 
let the lenders know about it. And you know what? When you do that, a lender, if you, they don't already know you're an honest broker, they learn that you're an honest broker when you tell them the things that aren't so great about the deal, which we do. Every deal's got its issues. And they stop looking for things that you haven't told them. <laughs> right? <laughs> if, you don't, if you tell them everything's perfect, then they start worrying and they start looking, you know. So. So, so I just want to add to it. So um, cooperation and honesty at the firm then is something else that we do as well. Uh, some firms, people lock their desks. They're afraid that other people at the firm are going to steal from them or look in their files or something like that. I think the opposite goes here. Everybody openly, freely shares the information they have from the top down. We make sure that there's complete trust between brokers and the people that run the firm. And if somebody doesn't follow that mantra of operating honestly amongst their peers in the office, they no longer work here. And over the years, a very, very small number of people have found this wasn't the best place for them. That's great. Good, good, good. Um, oh, we help them find that. <laughs> help them come to that conclusion. So, hey, while David's thinking here, I, I heard a great quote. Uh, I don't know if it's real, but it's an old George Smith quote, supposedly. And that is, that if the shoe almost fits. Wear it. Okay, so what does that mean? I have no idea. I never did it. No. <laughs> when, when George was, when George wrote that as a headline in FinFax. Yes. And what was what was happening at the time is that, that we were in a, Market similar where we are now that that rates were moving up and lenders are being very conservative mm -hmm. and he had experience of presenting you know lender offers to borrowers and borrowers saying yeah but it's not quite what I want I want a little bit more I want a little bit more and, and you know, push your George and he finally came he finally said to one you know if the shoe almost fits wear it and what what was happening is that you push the deal so far they break and George understood that. And that was sort of his, his mantra that he was telling clients. That's what I came the from. subtext of that, which I think would call like maybe the brand corollary is the sponsor wanted to know that they've pushed the market to the best execution, even if it's not what was in his mind as perfect. And you go, look, we pushed it. We pushed it. This is right. the best deal out so, there. So we're kind of in that market right now. We I know are. David and I are working on a deal where you know, during the course of the deal, interest rates have come up, I don't know, 80 basis points. Right, fixed rate rate. Fixed rate yeah. rates. <clears throat> We've also seen during this last couple of months, um, leasing uh, kind of slow a bit and they haven't been able to drive rents in, this, in the way they had anticipated. Um, and I think we've basically gone to the ends of the earth in terms of potential capital stacks, try to get very creative, you know, with ground lease bifurcations, uh, preferred equity, you know, all, all kinds of different structures. And the bottom line is at some point, you know, if the shoe almost fits, wear it. In this market, it feels like to me, and I'd like to get your guys' wisdom on this, that we're going through a bit of a period of, of sort of capitulation from real estate owners where they're starting to understand that interest rates are likely to be long for, for quite some time. David and I were discussing this earlier. And if so, you know, what's the implications for them and their financing? You guys have been doing this for 40 years. What's your outlook with respect to borrower uh, sponsor Expect expectations? expectations. And, yeah. Well, I think it, it varies. Uh, everybody's different, obviously. Right. Um, every one of our 
every one of our borrowers is different and they have different levels of how they see reality uh how they see how, their view of reality i don't mean that they're they're not in touch with reality but they have different people have different perspectives some people think rates have peaked right now some people think that there's more to go um, and that's that's guiding decisions but my sense is and i agree with you that that i that there is a sense that okay we're in the real estate business we have to transact sometimes you, you really have to transact because you have a maturity coming due sure uh, and you have to do something you can't just wait people are not refinancing to pull cash out of deals because that usually is not accretive uh, in this in, with with interest rates being higher than when the original loan was put in place so but there are t there are reasons to transact uh, there's opportunities to acquire properties uh, that that maybe or acquire notes uh, there's some some things that are now beginning to, to surface uh, at this stage of the cycle and I think people are being opportunistic and looking for those opportunities those those, those uh, right. distressed properties that, yes bank owned possibly perhaps no, it doesn't seem to be a flood of it yet no but it might be happening soon cool um, well, I, I think it's about time to wrap up. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom out there? Gary? Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do over the next 40 years. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Now, we're really glad to have both of you guys. Well, let, let me just say something, because I, I do want to say something. that, that Obviously, we, went, we made a major change last year, right. and that is um, by, by changing, by access capital acquiring the company. And that, that is a change. It was a change in management style. Uh, which was really a management committee, and it's more top-down now. Evan, you're now CEO, um, and which is great. Um, but I think that a lot of the, the characteristics that we've had have carried forward. There have been things that have been added to it uh, by virtue of uh, the tech group, which you alluded to earlier, um, that are doing a tremendous job in, in uh, producing uh, proprietary software for us to use to monitor tra our transactions to get them into the marketplace and to track them through the marketplace uh, and to help us source and figure out what are the best capital sources for particular deals with the highest probability of closing uh, and that that's a major change that has not happened until the acquisition so uh, I'm really excited about those changes and looking forward to seeing where that takes us I agree Great, so you can find us at gspartners.com and also this, the Landscape Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify and YouTube. And YouTube, yes. And David, where do they find out about FinFacts if they're not a subscriber? Uh, they go on our website and subscribe. gspartners.com. That's right. There you go. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure.